I hope already, as we've sung about the death of Christ, as we've read through these passages, um, that you're already coming to that place, recognizing uh, the significance again of the death of Christ on our behalf, remembering what we come to remember on Good Friday. I think as we do, I want to consider the issue of value. And I think oftentimes we assess the value of something based on the price that someone would pay for it, right? Sometimes it's connection to, to function. The, the greater the function, the higher the value, the car that is faster, the truck that pulls more uh, is of greater value than the others. Sometimes it's based on beauty, a uh, piece of jewelry or art. The, the more beautiful it is, the higher its value, the higher its price. Uh, sometimes it's rarity of the item, a historical artifact or a precious stone. But again, the, the higher the price that someone's willing to pay for it, the higher the value of the item. And, and I think we feel this when we go shopping, don't we? I, I know I sure do, um, because I want to buy a good one. I don't want to buy junk, uh, and I don't want to waste my money. So uh, I've watched myself do this um, Looking at the options, usually something that I know very little about, and my entire reasoning process goes like this. That one's the cheapest. I'm not going to waste my money. But that one's the most expensive, so I don't want to go overboard. But the second most expensive, that's, that's the one. That's the, the value for you know reasonable amount of money, quality and, and value balance. Uh, and, and I walk out of there confident in my purchase, having no idea what I just bought, not having asked one question about its functionality or use. Um, we just base value on price. And I think we let that way of thinking creep in sometimes as it comes to Good Friday, as it comes to the cross of Christ. On Good Friday, we see the highest price paid for anything ever in the history of the universe. And as prideful creatures, we would like to look at that price paid and we would like to believe that the the sheer magnitude of that price can only mean one thing. That can only be a reflection of the immense value that I have. We're going to spend some time this morning and Sunday morning looking at Romans 5, 6 to 11. And I think this challenges us to flip that reasoning around a little bit. We'll look at verses 6 to 8 this morning, and and we'll save 9 to 11 for Sunday. But the first thing I think we see in this passage is that God purchased us at great cost when we were wretched. Contrary to how we so often assess value, the price that was paid at the cross says nothing about the glory of what was purchased, but everything about the glory of the purchaser. Let's take a look at Romans 5. I'll show you what I mean. Uh, open your Bibles. Uh, if you don't have a Bible on you, um, just slip up our hand, your hand. One of our ushers will get you one. Um, we just want you to have God's Word open in front of you. Um, it's God's Word that has all of the authority here this morning. Let me read this passage for you. Uh, Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 6. Paul says, For while we were still weak, At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. 
But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. First thing we see as we look at this set of verses is is the inescapable truth of, of our own wretchedness. While we were still weak, the word weak, there's a bit of a, a soft uh, translation. Um, Richard's got it right in his King James this morning. Uh, it says, well, we were without power, powerless, without strength, helpless to stand. Um, it's used through the Gospels of the, the cripples. It's used of the, the desperately ill. Um, we had no power, no way of helping ourselves. And then it says that we were ungodly. Unholy, We were without reverence for God, without respect for Him and His laws and His position in this world. And the third word used to, to describe us through this passage is down uh, into verse 8. And it's the word sinners. And that's the worst of all. Weak and helpless is a little bit pathetic. Ungodly is a little more abrasive. It tells us what we're not. We are not godly. We are not reverent toward God, but sinners makes this a positive attack. Um, You aren't just ungodly, you are actively a sinner. This is a title that was used through the Gospels of the prostitutes and the tax collectors. Tax collectors in the day, more like modern day loan sharks, but worse, and government sanctioned with all power to do whatever they wanted, and, and they used it. Ultimately, a sinner is one who refuses the rightful rule of God, his authority over their life, and and lives in rebellion to him. And that's a big deal. That's a big deal. God created this world. He owns it. It's his. He has the right to rule it. And we rebel against him. And it's all of us, without exception. Every one of us that has ever lived, either still is or has lived, as if we were our own boss, rejecting God's authority. I will decide what is right and wrong. I will make my decisions. I will live my life my way. And and God, if you're lucky, I I might tip my hat to you, but that's about it. It's rejecting God. And that's, that's where we stood. We were ungodly sinners and helpless to do anything about it. And Paul's point in, in dragging this out is to show us Jesus didn't die for those who were on the right track. Those who lived generally good lives, those who were dedicated enough to show up to church on a Friday morning. He didn't die for the right kind of people. He died for the wrong kind of people. He died for the sinners, for the ungodly, the outcasts, the filthy, the dirty. The ones who don't fit in, the ones who don't belong. They aren't the good people. They aren't the upstanding citizens. As you read through the gospel story of of the death of Christ, it's it's the thief hanging, filthy, naked, beat up on the cross saying, we're here under righteous condemnation, but crying out to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. So as we read this morning in our prayer time of Barabbas, the insurrectionist, the rioter, guilty of murder, And the picture is that he is set free and Jesus goes to the cross. Verse 7, Paul begins to draw out the absurdity of this situation. He says, For one would scarcely die for a righteous person, 
It's not, it's not going to happen. Good luck finding someone who's willing to die in the place of even a righteous person. Now, we, we put a fair amount of value on a righteous person. That's a good thing. A person who always does the right thing. A person who's upstanding and honest and trustworthy. He, he wears a suit. He works a job with, with benefits. He pays his taxes. He, he votes. He's a good citizen. That's a, that's a good thing. We value that, but we're not going to die for him. Nobody's going to give their life for this guy. Now, Paul speculates, for a good person, someone might even be prepared to die. It could happen. It's conceivable. Um, A good person is more than just righteous. He's also generous and loving and caring and kind. He has foster kids in his home. He's adopted a puppy from the SPCA. He's a good person. But even for him, Paul says, it's a stretch. It could happen. It would make for a, a heartwarming story. It would be a good you know, tearjerker end to a, to a Disney movie. We have some sense that that would be an honorable thing. That would be a good thing, a right thing. But it's rare. But God, God shows His love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's absurd. It doesn't make any sense. There's no logic to this. There's no connection. There's no parallel between the cost, the price that was paid, and the value of what was purchased. It's not even a heartwarming story. It's confusing. And and I think we still kind of rationalize it in our minds. Yeah, but it's me, right? Like, I mean... I know for a good person, one maybe would die, but we're talking about me now. Um, No. No, as sinners, as the ungodly, this should make us uncomfortable. This takes all of our ideas of what's right and honorable and turns them upside down. Christ died for sinners. How many times have you felt justified? Have you walked away feeling confident in yourself for not even giving up $20 or maybe $2 to that homeless guy on the street that approached you. That's my money. And he's probably there by his own bad decisions. He'll probably waste it on something else. He's not going to use it well anyways. I'm not even going to bother giving him my $2. That's a sinner. That's the picture that, that Paul is drawing here. We deem them to be unworthy. There's a righteous person in need. There was a guy with a a suit on and a nice car and he said, oh man, you know what? I'm just, I'm two bucks short for my coffee this morning. For that, we would be willing, maybe for a righteous person, certainly for a good person, somebody who who loved us, somebody who's been good to us and came and helped us out when we were in trouble. We'd be glad to help them, but, but the sinner, the wretched, No, we don't want anything to do with that. But God, because of his great love for us, sent his son to die for us when we were yet sinners. This is a curveball. This this is twisted. This is upside down and backwards. That immeasurably high price of the death of Christ paid for us was not a display that we were of some great, magnificent value, but of the greatness of the love of God 
but God shows His love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's not about how wonderful we are. It's about how amazing God's love is. We looked at this when we came through uh, Ephesians chapter 2 not long ago. Paul talks about how we were, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Following after the course of this world, the passions of the flesh. We were by nature children of wrath, the target of God's righteous condemnation. That was us. And then he says in Ephesians 2, 4, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. Now what does Paul mean by stressing His rich mercy and His great love? He could have said, But God, because of the amazing potential that was in us, Right? But God, because of our intrinsic value as people. But God, because of the wonder of our value and worth. But He doesn't. He says, because of the wonder of God's love. And He stresses it. It's His rich mercy, His great love. Because a little mercy and a a little love might be enough for that righteous person or that good person. It just takes a, a little bit of love to reach that depth to cross that chasm but to reach down to the ungodly and the helpless and the sinner that takes great love that takes rich mercy that's what's on display here that's what's being accomplished on the cross now i get it that's not what we like to hear it would have been far more pleasant to go to church and be told this morning that that you are great and wonderful and precious To be told that that God saw something in you that was worth dying for. It would be nice to be told that the hands of Jesus spread out wide on the cross is God saying, this is what you are worth to me. And we could close in singing about poor Jesus like a rose trampled on the ground who thought about me above all. We're not going to do that this morning. I'm not going to say those things because it's not what the Bible says, and I'm not willing to put words in God's mouth. But believe me when I say that's good news. That is really good news. When we begin to twist the gospel just that little bit to try to stroke our own ego, to try to make ourselves the center of what God is doing, we destroy its foundations. When we turn the gospel into something terrifying, Even though it burns a little bit, to get this painful diagnosis, the end result is so much infinitely greater. Listen to Charles Hodge, he's an old Presbyterian theologian. He put it this way. If God loved us because we loved Him, He would love us only so long as we loved Him and on the condition of our love for Him. And then our salvation would depend on the constancy of our own treacherous hearts. But as God loved us as sinners, 
as Christ died for us as ungodly, our salvation depends, as the apostle argues, not on our loveliness, but on the constancy of the love of God. Do you see what he's saying? Do you see the, the difference in how that logic plays out? Whatever it was that motivated God toward our salvation, whatever it was that, that drove him to that becomes the foundation of it. And our salvation then is only as sure and as stable as whatever that motivating factor was. If God loved you because you were a good person, because you loved Him, because you offered something of value to Him, then you could only be sure of your salvation so long as you maintained that certain level of goodness, so long as you retained that value, that usefulness to God. As long as your love for him was sustained, his love for you would be sustained. If God's salvation is based on anything in us, that's a terrifying position to be in. First of all, if we're honest, all of us would just immediately be ruled out. And just, let's just pack up and go home now. If God saves people based on their value, if God saves people based on their love for Him, if God saves people um, who've had their own lives on the right track and doing the right things for Him, every one of us would be damned. We'd be lost without exception. There's no one righteous, not even one, no one who seeks God. All of our righteous deeds are like filthy rags, Isaiah tells us. And how would you ever know? It would be a constant wrestling and wondering. If you're at all honest with yourself, you'd, you, you would never come to any sense of assurance that you've made the mark. How do I know how good is, is good enough? How do I know if I'm there? And some days you would think, I think I did it today. That was a good day. I think I made the bar. And then the next day you would think, I am so arrogant. How could I have assumed that? And look at my life now. I have, I have nothing before God. I have no basis on which to think that He would save me. There's no way that my faith is sincere enough, that my life is obedient enough, that my love for God is deep enough or pure enough. And how could I ever be sure anyway? You could never rest. And there are a lot of people that wrestle deeply with these fears. And assurance and peace of salvation are just hard to come by. That life of, of salvation rooted in us is nothing but, but torturous in doubt and fear and trembling. But praise God, that's not what the Bible teaches. That's not what the cross was about. No, Paul says, when we were weak... At just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. They love that. Just the right time. This wasn't, a, this wasn't unexpected to God. This wasn't out of plan. This was from the beginning, planned out perfectly, going according to that plan. And he died for the ungodly, the weak, the sinner, for us. Look at Luke 5. Luke writes, after this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. To the tax collector of all people, Jesus seeks him out and says, follow me. 
Leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? So Jesus is here and you would expect him to be spending his time with the righteous people. Those are the Pharisees, by the way. We, we get this distaste in our mouth for the Pharisees as we read through the Gospels, as we should. But in Jesus' day, they were the good guys. They were the churchgoers. They were the men in the nice suits. They did everything right. And that's where you would expect Jesus to be, among the people who were keeping the law, among the people who knew the Bible inside and out, worked respectable jobs and went to temple and tithed. But that's not where he is. He's out with the tax collector, the wicked man, saying to him, of all people, follow me. And and then he's sitting down at this feast in a house full of, of tax collectors and sinners, the dregs of society. And the Pharisees press him on this. And essentially they ask him, why aren't you spending time with the people of more value? People who deserve it more. And look how Jesus responds in verse 31. Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician. Now you need to understand the irony in Jesus' words here. Essentially, those who think they're fine, he knows their wicked hearts more than anyone. But he says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. I didn't come to validate people in their own pride. I didn't come to save people who were pretty sure they're doing all right on their own. They can stay on their own. I came to display the wonder of my love by displaying it on saving those who have nothing to offer. Paul rejoices in this truth. First Timothy 1.15, I love this passage. He says, this saying is trustworthy, deserving a full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Such good news. Such good news. The death of Jesus on the cross was not for those who were worth it. It was not for those who could offer something to God. It was for those would give him opportunity to display the value of his love, the wonder of his grace. It's not motivated by a return on investment. It's not motivated by anything in us, but everything in God. And if God is going to display the riches of his love, if that's his, his goal to show how great his love and mercy is, the magnitude of it, then are not those who are weak and ungodly sinners the perfect place to do it. The more ungodly we were, the greater the display of His love. And so the cross is not a statement of how great we are, but of how wretched we are and how great the love of God is to overcome that, that He would save even us. And then the the foundation and the security of our salvation rests not not in us, 
Not in our own fickle faith and stumbling obedience and and doubting hope. But in the absolute, irreversible, unchanging, unquenchable love of God. That's our hope. That's where our confidence is. That's what we see in the darkest hours in the history of the universe as the sun is blacked out and the Son of God cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The wrath of God is poured out onto Him. It's not a display of our value, but a display of our wretchedness and a display of the love of God for us. It's the motivation and the foundation for our salvation. What a beautiful thing that is. That's amazing. Do you question whether God would really save someone like you? Do you struggle for assurance and peace? Am I I truly saved? What does God see in me? How do I know that, that this is real, that he would actually do this? What if I stumble? What if, what if I'm not what he hoped? What if I'm letting him down? Don't look at yourself. Don't look to yourself to see if you are righteous enough. Look to yourself to see if you are a sinner. That's who Jesus came to save. Don't look to yourself to see if you're, if you're good enough. Look to yourself to see if you have trusted desperately in Jesus. And then trust in that amazing love. Look at Him. Look at the, look at the absolute unchanging nature of His grace. Displayed on the cross. This grand display of the determination of the love of God to overcome every obstacle. To overcome our wretchedness with God's Amazing love. So as we celebrate Good Friday this morning, we want to bring this time to a close in in remembrance and a a somber crescendo, celebrating the Lord's Supper together. Remembering the sacrifice that He Himself instructed us uh, to do. Thursday night at sunset would have been Friday in the Jewish reckoning of time. And Jesus and disciples sat down for the familiar Passover meal. They would have done this many times before. Jesus began to explain to them that that his suffering, his death on the cross, would be the fulfillment of everything that God had been doing to save his people from sin and reconciling sinners to God. And in taking this Passover meal and and now using it to, to speak of himself, to represent himself. He's saying this is the fulfillment of it. This is the completion of everything God has been doing up to this point. It had always been pointing forward to his death. Every sheep slaughtered, every bull that was slain was looking forward to Christ, was implicit faith in the coming Savior. And he's telling his followers, this is it. This is the moment. God has been overlooking past sins now to this point. Remember this. Stop regularly. Remember this. And everything following points back. Everything following looks back to the wonder of the cross. His body broken is represented by the bread. And his blood poured out in death as a represented in the cup. He's keeping our focus back on this pivotal moment. This great display of the love of God. 
and the salvation of the weak and the ungodly and the sinners.